It gives me great pleasure to, to introduce Stephen Langdon, Professor Stephen Langdon, who has uh, conducted substantial scholarly research in Southeast Alaska for over 40 years, has been a professor of anthropology at UAA for 38 years, something like yeah. that, and uh, is very no well known as a scholar on pre- and post-contact fishing systems throughout Southeast Alaska, uh, pioneer in documenting and understanding the cultural context of intertidal fish structures that were used to capture salmon in many areas around Prince of Wales and other parts of Southeast. And um, he developed an important concept of relational sustainability to describe the cultural structure of relationships between human and non-human entities that uh, which live which the lives on which the lives of thinking people depend. Hopefully he'll be talking more about that today. Um, but he's also, you know, I've known him for many years and he has an applied side. He, he's an expert witness often and uh, he did a substantial piece of early work on subsistence systems in Alaska with Rosita World when she was at the university. Um, she, he wrote a significant paper on uh, subsistence management regimes for the Berger Commission back in the 80s. So, you know, he's, he's done a lot um, beyond just his strict scholarship and, and teaching. So he, he really, we're very fortunate to have him today. And thank you and welcome. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and, and I want to, uh, to thank Chuck very much for digging pretty deeply, although we, we, I've known him a long time, di di digging pretty deeply into my past to come up with a couple of those, those uh, sometimes overlooked nuggets. But uh, many of those things, when the one thing you forgot, Chuck, well, well he didn't forget it, but uh, I also began the system of tracking limited entry permits to identify what's happened to the rural permit holders throughout southeastern Alaska that's never been adequately addressed in my judgment. And there are many in here who recognize those, what I'm talking about in terms of that situation. Um, first, I'd like to thank very much. Uh, I'm honored to be invited uh, to present in the uh, Sea Alaska Heritage Institute series on spirituality. I must say that uh, I've known um, uh, Dr. Worrell for a long time. She's a dear friend and colleague, and uh, I've learned much from her over time. Uh, and I also want to express my appreciation and my, uh, my deep admiration for all of the elders. Uh, over, over the years, uh, my 40 years of working in southeastern Alaska, who I had the opportunity to uh, engage with and learn from, so whatever limited kinds of understandings I have, uh, it, it is certainly as a result of their being willing to talk to me and, and try to make me understand. And, and I've done my best, but I would also enter a disclaimer, which is that um, uh, if I make errors or misstatements, uh, I apologize. And I'm also, um, unfortunately, not uh, a speaker of, of the wonderful language of Tlingit which is so uh, remarkably uh, rich in its ability to contextualize these materials in ways that um, I find very moving. Um, <clears throat> the topic that I endeavor to address is monumental and it's, uh, it's total as it relates to the very, the very fundamental nature of existence. Uh, spiritual connections and obligations uh, are uh, an are at the very core of how young Tlingit people come into the world and begin to learn about their lives. A couple of, of key themes and concepts to start off with. A cosmology uh, represents the um, understandings of the nature of existence itself. The entities, processes, interactions, and the nature of time and space relationships. There are other cosmologies, all it's a universal fa facet of human ex cultural experience to account for ourselves in some fashion or other. One of the core principles of Thinket cosmology is what we now call, as an academic term, cosmological cycling. And I'll have more to say about that is. 
and that these, uh, these living spirits, these entities that constitute one of the forms of, of existence cycle between the domains of life and death as we know it, uh, and, and that cycling is subject to appropriate treatment. So there have to be appropriate relations that ensure that these cycles persist. Uh, connections is the very important part. Um, these domains of existence are connected and uh, the spiritual forms in the domain of life uh, are connected uh, on a, uh, uh, a permeable and a semi-permeable basis with the other forms as well. Second to the connections is interdependence. Interdependence is absolutely at the heart. Uh, one of the things I like to teach uh, classes, I, I, I now use a concept of obligatory reciprocity. The moiety system of Tlingit people requires the other. You must be interdependent. You cannot be Robinson Crusoe or some individual Ayn Randish person. You never think in that fashion. You always think of the other side and the necessity of that interdependence. So too, those relations are fundamental to the way in which spirits uh, of all of us are related together. The relations then are foundational to the creation of, and, uh, of the interdependence. And those relations include obligations. What obligations constitute uh, what one must do to allow existence to continue. And this constitutes one of the core principles always and that is respect. But the working out of the meaning of respect is very important and needs a lot of examination and continuous utilization and demonstration. These occur in all forms of life, but especially in the ritual and ceremonial life. So as Dr. Smythe mentioned, Clinket beliefs, behaviors, and ritual practices are built on these basic principles, and they are oriented toward relational sustainability. I want to make a quick footnote here. I said on the interview on what we have is a, a fundamentally different view from that of a Western biblical or science-based construct in which the arrow of time goes forward. When a life is lived, it's gone and a soul goes somewhere or another under Christian belief or the, 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 the physical remains disappear in a scientific belief. This is very different and it implicates people's behaviors in very different ways because there's a responsibility that is inherent in terms of bringing about these changes. So at the foundation then we have uh, a series of understandings that are given to us by in the accounts, the oral traditions, the sacred accounts that are associated with the transformation that Raven or Hiel brought about. Uh, and you can see in the background some of the aspects that I'll mention here quickly as we go through this. But another important aspect of, of uh, Hlingit thought, which relates a little more to how people are now investigating the ancestry, this chart shows on the bottom the relative sea levels. And that dark line at the top shows where sea level is currently at and where the little bulge goes above, that's when sea level was much higher and it was establishing beach uh, strands up here. Tlingit clans and people have accounts of deep time that deal with a flood. And this is quite possibly the time then in which the ancestral occurrence of the flood may well correspond with these geological understandings. But Raven's creations are fundamental to how we exist. And of course, the classic story of the releasing of the sun, moon, and stars from the head of the Nass River where they were held by the power of the man is, is a crucial story because it tells us that in deep time, it gives us one of the key understandings. Uh, at that time, all of the animals and the fish appeared as other people. This is the critical understanding that will, gets carried forward from this account. And they would put on their, their clothing, which is their outside. And when, the, when light came on, the major transformation that occurred was that they no longer took off uh, their skins and their feathers anymore, but that did not change the deep essence. The deep essence of their spiritual personhood is still manifest. Another of, of Raven's stories uh, is that he had uh, obtained fresh water for all beings from Dekinu, which is Far Out Fort. And I had the joy of visiting Far Out Fort with uh, the now past uh, uh, Clarence Jackson some years ago, who would speak with great eloquence 
uh, of this location. This is the location in, in Clinkett thought, particularly of southern Clinkett's, from which fresh water came. And Raven flew over the landscape, and it dribbled out of his mouth and became rivers and streams. And there is still a spring on those islands that Clarence said he went to that is there. This is another important point about the, the spatial location of the actual occurrences and the return of Clinkett people to those special landscape areas to be able to encounter these very, very deep time phenomena. It's located in the Hazy Islands, which sits about 15 miles west of Coronation Island in southern southeastern Alaska. Um, and of course, Raven was also brought forward uh, King Salmon. Uh, he tricked King Salmon into jumping onto the beach near Latuya Bay. And uh, I was uh, given an account by Clinkett Elder, now deceased, about his discovery of the Foots Raven's footprints on the beach outside Latuya Bay, where this particular event occurred as well. Um, <clears throat> in addition uh, to, 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 um, to um, tricking the king salmon, uh, Raven is also responsible for hauling in the tank from the ocean and releasing all of the species of fish. Uh, and this too is, is considered to have occurred in the ocean off of um, northern southeastern Alaska. And he also convinced Owl to get fire from the ocean, from the fireball. And this is another wonderful piece of Hlingit, um linkage. This is uh, a, a petroglyph that exists now in the in Kloak, in the Totem Park, that was originally on Shanda, or Fishegg Island. And it's a mnemonic device. I have a video in which Clara Pravatrovich explains the way in which this demonstrates how uh, Owl's beak burned as he went out, to the, went out to the ocean and got the fireball and came back in. So this is actually a, a, a part of Clinkett pedagogy how one passes these traditions on and ensures that the young people have them embedded within them. Uh, the, uh, the final uh, incident that I wanted to mention is also that uh, Raven's responsible for the creation of the tide in which he was able to uh, uh, trick um, the old woman who controlled the tide into releasing the tide so he could go down below and this is, is part of an atu, uh, a tunic worn by the duck dentan, uh, and this activity is thought to have occurred in, in the Indian Islands. So what lessons do we obtain from um, this particular category of deep oral traditions, which I can consider to be of, of, of a quality of sacred um, understandings that are, are the equivalent of, of biblical type accounts. Uh, first of all, we learned that uh, the movement between domains of existence occurs. So that this is possible. It may only be possible by some, but it does occur. Movement between forms of existence occurs. That forms transformations can occur. These have implicit messages that are carried in life. Things may not be as they appear. So one must pay attention for the deeper parts of what is uh, at, at present. There may be deeper meanings than those that are apparent beyond our present understandings. There's the implicit message as well to be observant, to be attentive, to be open to new knowledge. And there's also the implicit message, which are that unbridled expressions of desire can be a problem, as those usually are some of uh, Clinkett's uh, views on Raven's behaviors. So Lathinkett Homan is sacred, as we can see. Uh, through the place names, through the locations, the actions of Raven in bringing about these transformations is here, is apparent, is within this landscape and now. It's not, not at a distance, not an abstraction, it is grounded in people's understandings of their own places. And we can see this in the extraordinary um, uh, work that has been done to document by Flinket scholars the place names throughout uh, southeastern Alaska that ground those experiences and make those all available uh, to others. So now we want to turn and talk about this other very important aspect of how indeed cosmological cycling occurs as we refer to it as. Uh, and in this particular respect, uh, we find that um, in, in English, this is sometimes termed rebirth or reincarnation. And in Clinkett belief, reincarnation follows the clan 
and it follows the house uh, often and uh, almost always the sex. So that if, uh, if a, a female elder dies, we'll expect her spirit to return through her name in a subsequent dimension, in a uh, subsequent time in the same, in the same um, uh, clan and same line. Uh, unlike in other places in the world, uh, even in other Alaska Native societies, um, this does, there's no crossing of species or moving into other um, kinds of populations. Uh, this requires, this particular process, critical underpinnings uh, that have to do with how uh, the, the body, the spirit, and the mind uh, are occurring in this particular life. It requires the relief of the spirit of death through cremation. So in traditional society, that act of cremation, which occurs four days, releases the spirit so that it can begin its journey to return. Um, and this allows it to leave the living world to prepare for return. The kuwake, which occurs at some time later, uh, is the memorial ritual that uh, not only does away with grief and accomplishes many other cultural objectives, but spiritually it accomplishes the opportunity for the return so that the new names can now be brought back. And, and think at life then is rich in the identification of who and when will they return. Uh, this is, comes through various different channels, through dreams, through visions, and in the past the ixt or the shaman was very important uh, using his mechanisms to uh, identify um, who is going to be returning. And as that person comes back, they will then be examined and listened to for the kinds of knowledge that they uh, have, for the kinds of tastes and the kinds of skills, all of these things bring together and undergird the notion of the return of the spirit. So it's the obligations of the living. These things must be carried out toward the spirit, uh, and these must be uh, in order for that spirit to return. This is why there is also uh, a horror within Hlinket society, and, and it's also shared in higher society, the horror of drowning and not having the body recovered. Because it's in the cremation that the freeing of the spirit to return. So if the body is not recovered, spirit cannot be released, the likelihood is that they may be going into another domain, a domain of spiritual power that is challenging in a place that you don't want to be. And that, that being is called the Kushtika. Uh, and so those landowner men are in fact locations why there is such huge investment great grief shown over the notion of drowning and people will spend so much time. So this is then just a, a little indication of what, uh, what cosmological cycling is about. It's the movement from birth through life to death and then the passage through death uh, until the spirit is called again and, made, and made it, makes its way um, back into this world. And these particular notions are codified in uh, three very important concepts, the concept of Shuka, which mentions and brings forth the names for the past, the joint heritage of the past, present and future members of the clan. This unbreakable, uh, this unbreakable ties and bounds. The present generation have the obligation of acting as the trustees to ensure that existence for themselves and those in the future who return will be possible. Shagun is the remembering and the honoring of persons that have gone before who have had special and meaningful experience for clan members. And the other critical uh, concept and, and relationship is that of Atu. And these are the sacred objects and practices which embody and memorialize ancestral experiences and claims to territory, resources, and relationship. Virtually all Atu have as part of the uh, the sacred carry that they have is through the sacrifice, the loss of a person's life in the context of those particular occurrences. Um, this then gives rise to the relational con cosmology. A relational uh, cosmology has an on the ontology of the existence composed of willful sentient spirits and forces. This is very important to understand and I'll use another concept here. It is respect and interdependence in this relational cosmology that are crucial. 
And the continuity of existence depends upon relational principles of mutual benefit, respect and giving. It is not theistically given. It's not based upon a determinant set of doctrines. It's based upon sets of understandings that are derived from those other core materials that we'll listen to. And it's not materialistic. It's not based upon any sort of scientific dogma. It is indeed relational at its core. And one of the other really crucial founding documents, critical documents in, in uh, Clinket existence, is the uh, relationship with salmon. Because salmon are indeed um, <clears throat> uh, fundamental and central and absolutely at the foundation of, of Clinket life in its traditional practice. And uh, this is given to young Tlingit people in a mythic charter. And that by mythic charter, I mean it establishes the principles of relationship. Uh, just like the Magna Carta establishes principles of relationship, the Aquatotsin story establishes principles of relationship that are, are absolute. And this story is a story in which a young human being um, begins by disrespecting and throwing down a piece of dried fish. This is an absolute uh, abomination or a sin in the context of other discussions. Uh, he then heads out of the house as his mother expresses her dismay, falls into the water, and would have drowned except that he was saved by the salmon people. The head of the salmon people saw him and took the boy down to the home of the salmon people which he discovered was deep off the shores of the water. And there he saw the salmon people as people like himself, without their skins. And he spent a year there and he learned, this is very important, he learned from the head of the salmon people. Salmon people taught him, and that's the important principle, one of the principles is, this is how you gain knowledge, is by attending to all of these other spiritual forms that are in your midst. And then he was required to come home. It's time to return to the stream, the head, the head of the uh, salmon people said, and so they got into their canoes. And as they headed back, uh, as they approached the stream where his mother and father were, he was, he was told to stand up to see where they, where they are. But because uh, he was in a canoe, when he stood up, he jumped out of the water. He jumped out of the water in front of the stream where his parents were. And then he gave himself to his father, showed himself and gave himself to his father. And his father took the fish and gave it to his mother. And she opened his slits and discovered the copper necklace that had been on him at the time in which he went out and was drowned. They then knew something was quite different. They asked the shaman, what should we do? The boy was put up. The shaman said, put him up overnight. He transformed, became the young boy again, and began the process of teaching the people what he knew, and from then on became a very powerful shaman himself. So this story demonstrates some of those key principles. Core principles about cosmological cycling, the return of the spirit. Non-human entities has an essential spirit of person that is the same as humans and that the ahune, or respect, the existence depends upon reciprocal, respectful relations. And that's what the young boy taught. Part of that teaching was the ritual relations, including the return of salmon bones to the water. And these are critical as part of that mythic charter. So, Clinket concepts and practice derived from this mythic charter include the, the notion of respect, which I mentioned, that salmon are to be understood as people, that they are sentient, means they feel. They are capable of sensing as we do. They are attentive. They know how they are treated. And they are, uh, have inherent dignity, as all people do. And so they must be treated with respect. They are volitional, meaning that they can make choices. And so they will choose to return to those who respect and carry them uh, with dignity and they have powers themselves, just like human beings. This particular quotation um, from Elder Joe Hotch uh, of, of the uh, Chilkat Kwan demonstrates one of the fundamental behaviors that derives from that particular um, 
uh, a mythic charter. And he says, one of the first things about this principle of respect and relationship is acknowledgement and affirmation. So, Joe says, when they are jumping, we are supposed to say, I yo. So as a young man, when I was out on the boats, as a very young man, clinked captains, and I'd hear him say, I yo. What the hell is that? You know, that means jump. Well, it doesn't mean jump. It, it's, it's the affirmation and the acknowledgement of your presence. I recognize that you are coming to us. Um, and in I.O. they keep knowing they're being appreciated and that is what respect is about. The continuous stream of appreciations that are uh, continuously passed on. And so they keep jumping. Uh, just keeping saying I.O. and that's the way they want to be talked to. The fish want to be appreciated like human beings. I won't go into the philosophical positioning but you constantly examine yourself. This is a reflexive principle in that particular way about yourself and the other in this particular case. Now we can also see this and I began uh, and I began an understanding of this particular phenomena which uh, the previous examiners of this particular object which sits in the Burke Museum. It's a carved stake that was attached as you can see to the left on uh, an intertidal weir and it was attached in such a fashion that it was above the water. And if you look carefully at the stake, you will see that it is in fact a carving that replicates the salmon boy story. Because what you have is the salmon on the outside and the inside is the boy or a person. Well now what might this particular stake in its context, and it was reported to have been on a, a weir like this, what might we gain from an understanding of it? Well, some people said, well, it was just demonstrating that these are the people who the salmon are to come back to. Well, who can see this stake? Who is the stake positioned to be able to see? Who will see it? The salmon jumping out of the water are the ones who will see it. They'll be the ones who will see it. And what will they see? Will they simply see a mnemonic device that indicates we who are who you are coming to know the salmon boy and will treat you with respect is it that lesson that is being conveyed perhaps that's a part of the lesson that's being conveyed and I won't uh, uh, I think that's an important part but but there's another thing about respect and about all of Clinkett ritual and ceremonial life and that's its aesthetic quality because you're not looking at something that is just dashed together and you're not looking at something that is put up in a wall or in a house. You're looking at something that is a beauteous object that is a gift. It is a gift to the salmon that is a part of the extension of the respect into another domain. And so too, in part of the accounts of the return of the salmon, uh, elders in Cloak would say that they would go out to those streams in their traditional regalia and they would sing songs at the time of that return. And then they would engage in a first, in, in a first salmon uh, uh, um, welcoming ceremony. So within um, the Aquatotsin Charter, the concepts that we've discussed are salmons as personal, sentient, volitional, attentive to human acts, dignifying, requiring the respect, and the return depends upon the res uh, upon rituals, ritual actions. Now, several years ago, I was, had the great honor to conduct a study on traditional ecological knowledge amongst elders in Huna and Klawak. And some of these principles that were given to me uh, are also part of the behaviors that are derived. In each case, those elders would tell that story in response to the question, what were you taught about salmon? That story was given to them. All of those represent uh, the very important practices that they are supposed to be engaged in. Uh, each of these are one of these kinds of practices. Utilize all, no waste, never speak badly, do not play with fish, and share with others. All of these constitute principles derived from that which continue to be very powerful in Tlingit life today. And in Kloak at the first salmon feast were held upon the arrival of the sockeye. The entire community was invited and the host clan harvested fish, roasted them in a pit and fed everybody. The clan leader collected the salmon bones after consumption and returned them to the estuary where the stream flowed out. 
This was part of the lessons that was taught by uh, in the Salmon Boy story. He sang to them to travel safely down to their homes and return as the bo bones drifted back out. So singing is another way of the identification of respect. So these constitute ritually prescribed actions to ensure the rebirth of the salmon and hopefully their return based upon how uh, the individuals uh, have acted. Um, okay. Uh, now this particular phenomena that I want to come back to is a phenomena of what we refer to as reflexivity. Which reflexivity is a way of looking at how your engagement and how your experiences can be used to interpret those others. And this is a constant premise that we see. How do I use what I know to be able to know how to behave? And so when salmon come back, Lingit people are out there. They're watching them just as they watch them jump and they say, Ayo, how else can we express our relationship uh, that will um, be about sustaining the relationship, to bring about the return. And this concept had not been explored until the, the, uh, Rosita was able to, uh, when she read this, she saw this is, this is significant. And uh, the scholars came together and talked about this particular concept. The elders that I interviewed had used this concept in word in, uh, in both communities, the concept of ish. And they used that word because there was no identifiable English correlate to all of its deep meanings in the context of Clinkett traditional ecological knowledge and spiritual life. So it's a multi-dimensional relational concept. It first of all, and you will say at the first level, it, is, it references a deep pool in a stream. Uh, and I'll come back to that point. But it also references something more pragmatic. Ritual and belief don't necessarily preclude the pragmatics in terms of how they are tied together. And I use the term sight index. What does that mean? Elder Sam Hanlon told me that as a young man, when the salmon were returning, he would be taken out by his grandfather. And his grandfather would get off the boat when he could see the salmon coming to a stream. And he would walk up that stream until he came to the first ish. And he would see if the first ish was full of fish. If the first ish was full of fish, then they could start fishing. If it was not, they would have to move on. Now there's some other people who would call that conservation. I don't call it conservation because it derives from a different foundation of relationship. But nevertheless, it is a site index to ensure that the salmon get to their homes. That's the pre premise. Home is where things are absolutely uh, fundamental. Uh, during spawning time, it is a place of rest and recuperation. It's a harvesting location. It's a spawning location. It's a site of modification. And it's a location of philosophical contemplation. Because salmon are so central. When Shinget watched salmon all the way back and all the way up, creating their homes, and uh, they see lots of things along the way that relates to their own experiences. They see as the salmon come through the shallows, they move very fast. They go through the riffles very rapidly. When they come to, when they come to the um, <clears throat> falls, they see that they have to exert enormous energy. Tremendous energy is exerted to get up those falls, to get back to their homes where they can spawn. And along the way, there are the issues. There are the deep holes, the deep holes. And in the deep holes, they can observe and see the salmon. This is where they regenerate. This is where they, their energy comes back to themselves. This is their place of solemn contemplation. Because what salmon are contemplating is that on the other side of these actions, I will die. So in that particular moment of contemplation, the idea of the ish is born as a special place where perhaps we should indeed create more issues. Maybe we should create more issues to make it possible for salmon to have more locations to do this. And this is what an issue is. An issue is a pool where you have falls above, riffles below, 
Eddie's on the side, and this is how the Salmon Boy name is in fact translated. It's translated as alive in the eddy. So here again is another reference to the crucial role that the Ish plays in understanding reflexively all of that effort. They need a place to rest. And in that place to rest, they are considering what, what their futures are going to be consist of. I went back to the, uh, and you'll find this particular uh, appearance symbolically uh, in a number of places that had previously not been identified. But when I was back at the University of Pennsylvania, I found what was called the Salmon Staff. And the Salmon Staff, which is about so long, came, comes from Sitka, probably by, by the clan that, uh, that uh, had, had, had the uh, uh, Salmon Boy story. And it has in, carved on it salmon figures, but in between the salmon figures are these ovals. There are three ovals inside of each other. And immediately when I saw that salmon staff, I said, that's the ish. The ish is given its representation in the context of, 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 of the salmon staff. Well, what does an ish look like? Well, there's a gorgeous real life ish. And it comes from the, the Neva River. And I was taken to this location uh, by uh, <coughs> uh, members of the Mills family, whose uh, father's side are the uh, clan uh, owners of this particular stream. And although there are other uh, locations on the stream in which we can see the physical relocation of stones. Stones have been moved from their areas to create open watered areas. Uh, and they use, and they've created for one of that purposes is to create a better gaffing ground. But it is built upon this premise that the salmon will come and be in that location because they value it. Well, as I stood by this particular uh, location and I looked at that beautiful thing and I looked at the little falls that ran across it. Behind me the brother said to me, we're not the first ones on this stream. And so what we see then is that these stones have been reorganized from this area above to create this small falls and behind it to create the ish. And so when I spoke to the, came back several years later this was an optimal time. This is an op optimal time in which the water level and the salmon could get over that easily into that ish. But several years later when I, I returned to Huna and spoke with the, the trustees of the stream, and he said to me, you know that ish? When I was back there this year, the water was so low, I had to move the rocks so that the fish could get up. So it's not like it just is built in there. It's a constant monitoring. You constantly monitor what it is. And the next time I came back, he said, Steve, you know what I did? I figured out a way so that the pool can equilibrate. When water is low, there'll be a path up, but otherwise it will be able to hold it. So it's this constant attention to the environment that you're in and the reaction to how that environment is received by others that's so important. And so uh, the honored Walter Sobolev, in the context of, of the scholarly discussion that was held on this concept, he said the following, which speaks to this fundamental spiritual essence and communication. There were those who were knowledgeable about all kinds of subjects. This thing named Ish, it was almost as if it were human, and he is conveying its spiritual essence. And it was spoken to in that way speaking in respect to it. That is how they valued this resource. It was as if their life depended on it, so they treated it with respect. Because they got their food from this place is why they would speak to it. There was pride, there was honor given to the ish, so no one was to say anything foolish about it. It was said that we could laugh at it, it was not so. We were told not to talk in a foolish way, but to respect it. This is what white men calls taboo. When you do this, there is a discipline, a law that will correct you. It will be like it falls on you. This is the way this is. And that is seen around us, said to be alive or around us, what it is called. Thinget people have known this to be true from time immemorial. So what we have here is the philosophy of Ish. But the philosophy of Ish is an expression 
of that fundamental relational sustainability. It is the basis for Tlingit engagement with salmon. At the top here is a renowned Western philosopher, by a man known as Alfred uh, North Whitehead, in which he says, <clears throat> the true mark of philosophical construction is to frame a scheme of ideas the best that one can and unflinchingly explore the interpretation of experience in terms of that case. And James Osborne, one of my uh, beloved Huna Elder sources said at the very start of our interview with great passion, you have to understand that we treat salmon like we would like to be treated. And so this constitutes then what, what it means in terms of the lives of people, how deeply these things are embedded from children and how deeply they are carried forth throughout their life. Now this, these particular relationships are also present on landscape. The landscape is also a deeply spiritualized place which carries with it connections and foundations. One of the most important for Tlingit uh, people was the role of the ixt and the shaman. And unlike other people, uh, the shaman was not cremated, but he was instead buried. And his burials, uh, those burials are in very special places. There's one right down here. Uh, on a point that's called Indian Point, that as those of you who live in Juneau know, has been a matter of great uh, clinket uh, expression of the power of that place and the significance of that place and the willingness to fight for this vision of how that landscape is spiritualized and meaningful. These things are, uh, are, are part of that. These are important, but they also carry with them a certain amount of danger. And uh, uh, that's very important, therefore, that they not be bothered in any particular way, in any particular fashion. Spiritualized places are often a combination between natural and constructed elements. And there are also naturally powerful sites, Latuya, with its tectonic and spiritual forces, known to have a great spiritual power. The Indian Islands whirlpools, where spirits reside, and can be of danger. And the uh, glaciers around the world and the locations of materials. I had the experience uh, several years ago of being part of uh, looking at uh, this unbelievable location. This is a cave on the outer coasts uh, of a ocean fronting um, island in southeastern Alaska. And inside that cave there are 70 pictographs. Pictographs are, are um, paintings. Uh, as opposed to petroglyphs, the carvings, 70 of them on these walls. And those depict many aspects of the stories about Raven that I'm talking about, about other particular uh, events, but they also include some very powerful and important images. Uh, and these are images associated with shamanic spirits. And it is quite likely in my judgment that this was one of the locations where shamans would retreat to acquire and seek the spiritual power. So this is a spiritualized place that is a combination of some unique qualities. One of the things about this cave that it has is it has naturalized flow rock. Most of our caves down there are shale type caves that drift. But behind here is natural flow rock. And the Clinkett's artist used the outlines and the features of that flow rock to lay on top their pictographs. So there's a merging of the natural and the spiritual together. Other extraordinary places that are highly spiritualized. And, uh, and my honor to the people from uh, Huna who may be here as this image I think is an iconic representation. And it comes uh, from the lower portion of Glacier Bay. Uh, and of course this is the Tlingit homeland and the, and the great stories of relationship here. And the failure to follow the accounts with regard to the treatment of spirits in a respectful way and the outcomes, what happens in the outcomes of the failure. And those lessons are very important. But this is an iconic statement because as, this, as you enter this landscape, you must speak respectfully to the glaciers that you are coming into their home, that you are going to be there. And so we have this elder on his canoe pulling up on the beach and he is sitting 
making his remarks there to that iceberg, making sure that they all understand that he's coming. And so recently when I was going uh, with the uh, people of the Yaktat Kwan up to Hubbard Glacier, so too as we advanced up to Hubbard Glacier, the elders, George Ramos and Elaine Abraham, required the boat to stop and before anybody landed, that there were speeches and offerings to the glaciers because of their enormity of their power and the significance of their being in the, the land of, of, of the glaciers. These are uh, part of a, the spiritualized relationships that must be continued. And at the far up end, upper end of Dish and Chanson Bay, the research that we've been doing there is to try to identify and recover information about the seal camps. They found it, so you can reapply for it. <laughs> uh, this is a seal camp at the top that was first documented in, by Harriman Expedition in 1899. And as a result of the, of the bottom picture shows recent archeological research that uh, has identified now as a result of tectonic uplift where those original camps were located. And this is the archeological excavation that shows the rocks that were the basis for the keeping the tents down. And uh, the excavation includes uh, maps of various different materials. Now in talking to the elders before we went up to that location, one of the things that I was told by Elaine Abraham is of the, uh, and I've, I heard it also in Cake and there are other places and other people in here certainly know, <laughs> is the power of crystals. Crystals are especially powerful uh, form of rock, crystallized rock. And uh, she said there's a sacred location at the head of, um, uh, of Disenchantment Bay from which these could be acquired if one was appropriately trained and had the appropriate uh, ritual activity. And so in the process of this excavation, uh, lo and behold, look what appeared. Two of these pieces of, of crystal were found amongst large amounts of beads and other kinds of materials. Uh, <clears throat> maintained and sustained by the people. So these are moral obligations. Clinkett cosmology and the practice it generates creates a behavioral orientation of keen and careful attention to one's environment in order to identify important indicators. In its emphasis on the necessity of respectful relations between spiritual forms, all similar in essential ways to humans as the Aquatatsin Mythic Charter demonstrates a direct attention to one's own behavior as important in ensuring continuity and avoiding disruption. Disruption can occur. The Castine story in Glacier Bay is a, a demonstration. While the basic principles as enunciated in the Mythic Charters are taught, modeled, and emphasized in Clinkett pedagogy, Part of that training concerns the responsibility of the person to continuously return to the teachings for guidance and application to current conditions. That most definitely includes Yale. I don't know how many people, I can't enumerate them, of my dear Clinkett friends and Haidas have told me of their encounters with Raven and the attention Raven has brought to them about specific kinds of phenomena and events. This is a part of the behavioral environment and the attentive structure that this particular set of fundamental cosmological and spiritual relations brings about. To demonstrate respect, one must carefully control one's own actions and most importantly determine how to behave in a manner that will be perceived by others as an authentic expression of respect in all of those domains, that is the way in which the tapestry of respect is built. And if I have a minute, I'll tell a final story of relationality and the benefits of relationality and this attentiveness. Many years ago in Cloaca, I went out in the spring with the mayor, dear friend of mine, Bill Woods, who was great. He loved the, the research on the fish traps. He liked to be out there and showing the things that we were looking at. He said, Steve, we're going to go out and we're going to see if we can catch a king salmon. So we went out into this area, backside of the Alberto Islands, if anybody's here, famous king salmon run down there as we made the turn around the corner uh, to go down, down the track. Bill had his poles out and he looked up and he glanced at the island on the opposite side on the order of a half mile away and he saw an eagle 
high up there, down at the end of the run, way down there, single bald eagle, you know how they sit and they look. And what they understand about eagles, eagles have enormously good eyesight. And not merely eyesight across the land, but they can see through water as well, much better than we can. And he is seeing that eagle, and as we pass down, he says, Steve, we're going to catch king salmon here. So away we went, down that pass. Pretty soon we're down there. Bang! Fish, fish on the line. Boom! Bill's playing that fish, gradually bringing that fish in. It's a beautiful king salmon. He ultimately, he, he puts down the net, picks it up, brings it in, lays it out very carefully in the appropriate clinket fashion. Then he begins cutting the slit down the stomach, and he pulls out the innards, the insides, and puts them in his hand, walks to the side of the boat, and he holds them up. And he points them in the direction of the eagle sitting down there. And then he takes them and he throws them overboard like that. And then within, within less than a minute, that eagle left that tree, and it flew down, and it picked up those innards, and it flew off. And as it flew off, Bill said, Gunoshish, thank you, brother. Relationality is at the core of how you conduct your life. And if you want to benefit from it, you will remember that. So in closing, I would like to say thank you. My, express my deepest appreciation to all the Lincoln elders who have over the years provided opportunities for me to learn from them in so many ways, such as the way I just talked about. And it's in those places where the learning occurs best. I know I could have learned much more. It has been a richly rewarding and humbling journey along which I have traveled to the limited understandings I have obtained. And again, I'd like to extend my thanks to Dr. Rosita Worrell and the Sea Alaska Heritage Invita for the invitation to present these remarks. I feel honored to have been invited to discuss these matters of such profound importance to Clinket existence as I have come to understand it. Gunal Shish.